0: Hi, this is Practice in Place, Law and Justice Go Viral, a podcast that asks the question, how does a profession governed by precedent respond to the unprecedented? Practice in Place investigates how the practice of law and the administration of justice have adapted under the abrupt constraints of the COVID-19 era, how that has affected how and whether we achieve justice, and how those changes and that experience might or should change the practice, the profession, and its procedures forever. I'm Susie Solman, clinical professor of law and director of the legal writing program at the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. I'll be your host. So when I was a kid, I used to have this recurring dream that I had been arrested and I was in jail. Sometimes I had committed the crime of which I was accused, and sometimes I hadn't. Or or maybe I couldn't remember if I had. But anyway, that wasn't the point of the dream. The dream was about the helpless horror of finding myself behind bars. Now imagine that you've been arrested for loitering or drug possession or petty theft. You're sitting in a cell, sharing close quarters constantly with several other people new people coming in and out constantly strangers you're all breathing the same air and touching the same surfaces and oh hey awesome that guy over there in the corner is hacking up along and just spat on the floor there are no windows to open because you know jail and the air is heavy and unmoving you're all using the same toilet the same sink you can't really wash your hands It goes without saying there's no hand sanitizer that contains alcohol, and they don't allow that in this place. You have no money, you can't get money. I mean, that's how you got here in the first place, trying to get money, so you can't pay bail. Oh, and they did give you a lawyer, a public defender, but she hasn't been able to visit you because there's this virus, this highly contagious virus going around, and it's killing people. On any given day in the United States, approximately 2.3 million adults are held in correctional and detention facilities, prisons, jails, detention centers, and psychiatric hospitals. Like many viruses, the virus that causes COVID-19 spreads easily when people are in constant close contact, particularly indoors where air circulation is poor. Moreover, according to the Centers for Disease Control, People in the jail and prison population tend to be in overall poorer health than the general population. This puts them at a higher risk for contracting COVID-19 and dying from it. And crowded jails and prisons hardly present optimal conditions for taking the routine precautions the rest of us do. In fact, social distancing is even more difficult in jails than it is on other high-risk, high-density locations, like nursing homes and cruise ships. Early in the pandemic, several organizations raised the alarm about the risk to those housed and working in our prisons and jails. Prison rights organizations demanded that governmental entities develop plans to protect against outbreaks. In March of 2020, the San Francisco Public Defender and District Attorney, Both directed their staffs to take steps to keep high-risk individuals out of prisons and jails. In early April, California set an emergency bail schedule that eliminated bail for most misdemeanor and some low-level felony offenses. Other jurisdictions instituted similar programs, also employing site and release policies for nonviolent offenders. A number of jurisdictions explored early release programs for those within six months of completing their prison sentences. As we've discussed in previous episodes, to the extent that US courts were conducting business during the height of the shelter-in-place orders, that business was largely taking place on the criminal side. In custody, initial appearances, arraignments, preliminary hearings, and the like. Even in criminal courts though, many matters were continued indefinitely. And in many instances, attorneys and defendants, many of them waiting in detention, in jails, face significant uncertainty and day-to-day changes in procedures and timelines. In this episode, I talked to Nate Wade, an attorney with the Pima County Public Defender's Office about what it's like to be a public defender during the pandemic, and specifically how public defenders and county attorneys reached across the aisle to work together and try to address some of the risk to those in Pima County's jails. At the beginning of our conversation, Nate walked me through some of the uncertainty, confusion, and fear at the beginning of the crisis and how those in public defense services responded. Here's Nate. Um,
1: And you had so many different actors Involved in the situation. You know, you had the jail making decisions um, on what visitation was going to look like. Um, were we going to be able to do video visits? Um, did they have capacity um, to do quarantines? Um, we had clients who were literally calling us terrified, um, you, know, on what, you know, as to what was happening. Um, nobody knew what was happening with the courts. So when our clients were calling and saying, am I having a hearing? Um, I don't know. You know, it was kind of just this kind of mass confusion. Um, And, you know, it was kind of scary not not being able to tell your clients what's going to happen with their case. You know, are we going to be able to work towards resolving it? Um, You know, are they going to be okay? Um, You know, and then it it kind of became, well, if we're not going to be able to do that, um, and I think it stepped up when they stopped all of a sudden, very suddenly, like on a Sunday night. We got word from the jail that they were no longer allowing in-person visits, um, and there wasn't a lot of explanation to it. So you know, because everybody's just trying to figure out how to communicate, and not everybody communicates the same way. So we all get word that visitation stopped. The clients get word that they're not allowed to you know see their lawyers. So you know, then everybody's wondering: Is there COVID in the jail? Um, and now. You know, try to even touch base with our clients and let them know what little information we have we can't do. Um, and so you're at your desk just hoping that you're there to take the call because if not, um, it's really hard to figure out how to get, get in touch with them. Um, and that's kind of when we really, uh, and I think, you know, with with Joel and, and the leader, Dean Brault um, and Joel Feynman, kind of really. Rethought like the importance of releasing as many people who were there for nonviolent offenses, uh, you know, that kind of thing, because the A, the fear was spreading. Um, and a lot of times B, we didn't know what was happening. So we would hear this new restriction at the jail. And of course, the first thing, you know, we're hearing the DOC's ha- you know, getting it. So it was, it was very scary for us because we didn't know what was happening with our clients. And just imagine, you know, being in a locked up situation, and not having inf- information, but knowing there's a pandemic. Um, and, and if, and if one person even got it, you know, the repercussions because you've got COs going in and out of the jail. Um, so they pick it up, they're taking it in the neighborhoods, um, you know, or staff, um, you know, and so we kind of framed it, our office, um, kind of took action at that point, um, and framed it kind of as both a humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, it's, it's cruel and unusual to, to leave people in that situation with that level of fear, um, you know, and not to minimize any offense over another, but imagine you're there for shoplifting and all of a sudden that, that could be a death sentence, you know, um, disproportionate, (laughs) right? Just quite, quite disproportionate. So uh, pretty much for anybody in there, it's, it's disproportionate. Yeah. Um, And so, um, so not only, so, you know, we talked about the humanitarian crisis, but also just the the public health crisis.
0: In light of this looming humanitarian and public health crisis, Joel Feynman, the Pima County public defender, reached out to propose working together towards a solution.
1: The first thing that happened was um, Joel Feynman uh, wrote a memo to the County Attorney, the Sheriff, the Chief of Police, and the Board of Supervisors, um, and framed it. And I can I can send it to you. It's a public document, but and, and framed it in that way of the both the public health um, and the humanitarian you know issues, and that we all needed to work together. Um, so then everybody way above my pay grade all got together and, and said, "Okay, um, here are the parameters." You know, the County Attorney said, "This is the type of." This is what we're willing to look at to release.
0: The Pima County Attorney's Office provided a list of criteria, primarily a list of nonviolent offenses. The public defenders then had the task of mapping that list of offenses onto the information they received from the jail and information they had in their own files and from the Department of Corrections, and then synthesizing all of that information into a list of clients in pre trial detention Eligible for release?
1: What we got from the jail, as far as a list, were these spreadsheets broken down by types of offenses. So, drug possession, um, theft by means, you know, burglary, um, things that met that list. Um, It was done by case number. So, if someone had two cases on two different tabs, you had to cross reference. Um, So, it was pretty herculean. I mean, we had to literally look up each case number, we had to look to see if they had other cases where their DOC, Department of Corrections holds. Um, So it took a team of about 20, we got the list on Saturday morning, uh, on a Saturday morning. So it took about 20, 25 public defenders, three straight days of 10 hour days of combing through those lists, pulling out the people who may qualify on one tab of the spreadsheet, but not qualify on the other um and so uh so it it was i mean people gave up their entire weekend for this project um and and to be honest like that it makes me proud to work with people that were willing to do that um nobody had to do that um the level of care um that i saw i mean i I knew i worked with great people um but the level of, of concern and care that i saw and the level of priority i saw um you know my colleagues give to that was really just inspiring. Um, so I think at the end of that, we came out with about 150 names, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me because there's eight, there were 1800 people at the jail at that point. So, so I don't know, like how we, you know, uh, those, to me those parameters were still a little tight.
0: Right. Uh,
1: and so then we just had a week of, you know, waiting um, to see what was gonna happen you know, with our clients. So you took
0: 150 names and you sent them back to the county attorney's
1: office? Yes, we sent them to the county attorney's office. And then what they did with those names is they went through that list and determined who on that list they would stipulate to release for. Um, And then they sent the list over and a stipulation was prepared um, by the county attorney's office and the public defender's office Uh, for the release and then uh, taken to the presiding criminal judge who then issued an order for each of those people. So we had two of those. One was for any case that had a non-victim. So drug possession, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, So those, because those could be handled immediately. And then the second list was a week later because of victim notification laws. Um, So non-violent offenses that still had a victim had to, had to wait for the notification process. And I don't know if that notification process and feedback um, from named victims affected that list. Joel might know that, I don't know that. Um, So at the end of it, I want to say it was 26 on one list, and then it came out to, I think, 40 or 41. So of the 150, 149 that we turned in, it affected about 40 people.
0: So ultimately, Less than 5% of those detained in Pima County Jail, and only about 30% of those on the list that the attorneys at the Pima County Public Defender developed over that marathon weekend were released.
1: You know, it was great for those clients and, and absolutely, we do it all over again for those, you know, to get, you know, even any result. Um, but you know, it was, it was disheartening at the same time. Um, because by that point too, the, the clients knew uh, that this process learning. was going on. Yeah. Um, and I do a lot of work at the legislature and whenever there's like a, a bill about early release credit, um, you know, all day long, once they hear, they hear, they get, they get hope. And, um, it was kind of the same thing. Like once they found out that this was happening, um, you know, it, it was like, am I on the list? Did I make the list? You know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. which is completely understandable. Oh, shit sure. um, and uh, so yeah, it was a it was a, a long two weeks. Um, you know, disappointing. I think in in the results. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing. You know, obviously I'm biased um, given my job. But you know, the other the other thing was then that you know when we were doing individual motions to modify, then there was an argument um, made opposing saying that they had already called the list to release, and so we shouldn't be filing individual motions to modify. Um, so we would hear that at our, you know, we go into court to, like, argue for individual clients. They'd be like, oh, well, we already, we already took care of everybody that should be released. So it was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Not so much. (laughs) We could still do those motions. You know, we could still argue, you know, client by client.
0: The jail population has declined, though. In large part because the Tucson Police Department has stopped arresting people for certain types of offenses. And so fewer people are entering the jail pipeline.
1: TPD has really slowed down their arrests on drug possession cases. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done a lot of site and release um, and a lot of deflection. Um, so we're seeing a lot less cases come in. So as people are getting put on probation, we're trying to speed that process up to for people with probation eligibility. Um, so we have been able to significantly reduce the jail population, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you know, great minds can disagree as to whether we've done enough, (laughs) but um, I I still think we have work to do.
0: For the clients who remain in detention, the exigencies of the pandemic seem to have created incentives to streamline processes in a way that may at least sometimes better serve the ends of justice and even be a little bit more humane.
1: I will say that, um, you know, again, the leadership all around, I think, has done a pretty decent job. I think the the communication between the agencies has gotten much better as we develop better systems. Um, Priority has been given to in-custody cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have found ways to do um, changes of plea on probation available cases, um, where we we deliver the plea to the client, um, they sign it, we arrange a video visit to go through the plea with them, um, and then they appear uh, by video Um, and we do the change of plea. Um, They're expediting the drug possession cases, non-victim cases. Most of those, they're waiving um, pre-sentence reports and probation reports. And so a lot of times you can get the change of plea and sentencing on the same date, whereas before it's a 30-day process. And so we've done, a lot of that has happened. Um, And then... You know, I've heard good and bad with the jail. I've, I've heard that they've done a great job with the quarantine. My clients that get quarantined have said it's way nicer than <laughs> <laughs> the pod. So they're like, oh, ha, ha, I'm still sick, you know. Um, <laughs> don't feel very good.
0: Sometimes, though, communication failures cause understandable panic.
1: But then they had an experience last week where um, the, ma- the mass that the, the jail had ordered didn't come in until last week, and they didn't explain to the inmates why they were all of a sudden getting masks and instructed to not leave their cells without their masks. Um, we then panicked, because we were getting out the but just imagine you're in the jail and yeah. nobody says, hey, we, this was a policy we've been trying to do for a month, it doesn't mean anything's changed, but this is what we've been planning to implement, and you just get handed a mask and, the, and someone says, don't come out of your cell without a mask. Yeah. Um, so rightfully there was a huge kind of panic and uproar we were all kind of fielding fielding calls um so i just you know i can't imagine day to day being in there um and not getting 100 percent of the story anytime a policy changes i'm sure every time a policy changes they're like you know <laughs> am i at risk
0: adding to the confusion for in custody defendants Hearings in the criminal courts can involve people appearing in a variety of mechanisms, from in-person, to video, to telephone. This creates challenges for everyone, but it can be particularly disconcerting for clients sitting in jail without an attorney beside them.
1: So we have one courtroom that can accommodate uh, a video court. Um, It's the same courtroom they use for arraignments um and so what's been happening is the the judges are doing afternoon court from about 2 30 to 5 every day and a different judge rotates in and they cover changes of plea motions to modify you know again mostly um almost all of it is is immediate things where you know the release of the defendant is is likely and and imminent um so we do actually have it um and we're trying to, to make it work. Um, some of the judges are, because there's no trials right now, so they're taking trial time and using that courtroom in the mornings, um, you know, if need be. Uh, you know, the, the tricky part, too, is we have, you know, out-of-custody clients who are probation available who would like to go ahead and get yeah. their probation moving and have this experience over as quickly as possible, too. Um, and, you know, and figuring out, now we're, now we're at that stage of how do we figure that part out for them as well. But, um, but we do have limited capability to do video court.
0: So, but who's who's on video in that scenario? It sounds like the judge is physically in the courtroom.
1: The judge is physically in the courtroom. The, um, the client, if they're in custody, is usually on video. Mm-hmm. Um, the attorneys have the option of appearing in person or telephonically. Okay. So there's enough phone lines usually to accommodate that. So but, you um, could
0: conceivably have... A, a judge physically present in the courtroom, a client on video, and all the attorneys on the telephone. Yes. I
1: mean, how does that even work? Um, not not well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we get through it. Um, so, you know, my biggest concern is to make sure that the client understands that, that they know exactly what's happening. That's, that's what I care about. Um, you know, so I covered yesterday and I went in person and, um, and I did three video changes of plea. Um, and I made sure that the client could see me on camera. Um, you know, and know that somebody was there because I think the hardest part for them is if I'm telephonic, the courtroom might be able to hear me, but is it going to translate to video? Um, so as much as possible, I guess we've got a small team of attorneys that are going in and covering as much of that as possible. And I think the judges prefer to have the attorneys there.
0: Oh yeah, I would imagine. Attorneys also have had to rely on video to meet with their in custody clients which isn't always ideal.
1: All client visits are by video yeah So, um, and that's been a challenge um, because there's only so much so much bandwidth. so um, there may be video slots technically open um, but if too much bandwidth is being used um, so there are days where you know you have to may have to wait like I, I had a juvenile client. Who'd never been and was was being charged as an adult. And it took me two days to get a video visit, you know, with him. And all I could think is the 16-year-old is in there terrified. Um, luckily I was able to get a hold of his parents.
0: Through all of this, Nate sees some potential silver linings from an increased appreciation of colleagues and their shared commitment to their joint mission, to possible changes to our justice system, as we're forced to look more closely at who ends up being detained in our jails and why.
1: Within our office, it definitely enforced everything we already kind of knew, but I think we all have a new appreciation for each other. Um, You know, we all know that we can count on each other, and I think we all really truly see how much people that we work with care about our clients. And that goes from paralegals to attorneys, you know, uh, support staff, um, you know, our support staff volunteer to do, uh, change of plea runs to the jail and back, uh, you know, just to see people band together. Um, you know, I, I hope that we're going to move to a new era where through this we see that we don't need to uh, arrest and indict so many people on things like drug possession. Um, I, I hope that that lesson is being learned and, and I guess we'll find that out, um, yeah. you know, in a couple months or or whatever. I, I certainly hope we're not sitting on indictments, um, because my, my fear is that all of a sudden, someone who had a drug possession thing that was dismissed has no, nothing else happened in the next six months and then finds themselves six months down the road, you know, um, indicted for something that happened a long time ago that didn't hurt anyone. Right. Um, so, you know, those are the lessons we're not going to find out about till, you know, but I think we're, we're showing we're, we're, the evidence is now there. And we don't need to keep overcharging people we don't need to keep indicting non-violent non-victim offenses um and and then using them to hold you know people with multiple felonies and you know that kind of stuff
0: well um, or detaining people before you know before trial when right. not really a danger it's just you know
1: right i mean you know i think to the 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 direct and i and i would like to this is the i would like to see continue the idea for drug possession cases that we just go straight into the plea to the sentencing because a lot of times they're going straight into being able to have access to treatment that's funded by the state. Um, so what is leaving them in jail do for 30 days or even having them wait out of custody 30 days so they're sentencing when they're not gonna, use, a lot of times, have access to that treatment that they would have through probation. Um, so I think there's a lot of lessons that we can take on how we can do things better um, that are not gonna increase the crime rate that are not gonna overcrowd our jails, that actually may provide more help to people than scar them and hurt them in the long-term.
0: Nate also talked about how various organizations, including some unexpected allies, have come together in hopes of seizing the challenges and opportunities of this moment to bring some of the implications of the crisis to the attention of the state's leadership. And hopefully, to make some long needed changes to our criminal justice system.
1: So I've been working with a coalition of of groups um, besides our office here, but also with Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice, um, which I am the legislative chair of. Uh, We have been doing weekly calls um, with a coalition of groups um, on these issues. And so uh, ACLU, uh, Maricopa County Public Defender, Coconino County Public Defender, American Friends Service Committee, which does a lot of work on mass incarceration and removing that. Um, uh, A group of uh, families of incarcerated people that's relatively new. Um, And then a national group out of DC, uh, two national groups, Forward.us and uh, FAM, which used to be Families Against Mandatory Minimums. I'm not sure what that stands for now. But anyway, so we've been meeting every every week to find out what's going on statewide. Uh, We have all Um, written letters to our legislators. We've all, on behalf of our agencies, we've all signed off on each other's letters. Uh, We've worked to call um, affidavits from from doctors uh, around the country um, and around the state, uh, basically warning uh, DOC, warning the governor, uh, warning legislators and local uh, board of supervisors of the dangers of a COVID outbreak, mm-hmm. you know, in the jail, um, collecting news like what happened in Cook County and Rikers Island. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's been really good to keep the dialogue open to know what's happening, you know, in Pima versus Maricopa, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, what we found is right now the legislators are all back home. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, it's really hard. Um, and the governor has mm-hmm. has dug in. Um, nobody's going to be released from DOC. You can send me all the letters that you want. Um, so we're trying to get creative. Um, one of the ideas I had, we talked about yesterday, um, was talking to, um, the corrections officers you need, um, because they've got to be having the same fears sure. as our clients. Um, you know, and so, you know, it seemed, it may be an unlikely Alliance, but I think a lot of the goals right now are the, are the same. Um, You know, in the fears and I know that there's a lot of frustration and there's already been some corrections officers that have been diagnosed um, that likely picked it up in in the jail, or in the DOC so um, There is a group working, you know, our our biggest problem is we have we have a very stubborn governor right now. Um, He's not going to take the lead on anything so I think we're now focusing again on our local, you know, local groups. Um, but Department of Corrections, even probably more so than the jails, is a pretty scary place to be right now.
0: Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, I know that some states have, um, you know, gone through and reviewed people who were within six months of release and started releasing those people um, and, you know, doing other things to alleviate prison overcrowding and, and be a little more humane.
1: Oh, absolutely. And our coalition has given them a plan. Like, yeah. we have given them. You know these are the these are the types of people that you can you know safely release this is what other states are doing this the federal government um actually instituted early release plans mm-hmm. um so he's got it and he's got it from a lot of different you know a lot of different people um you know uh and especially to me in a state like arizona where right now the doc or department of corrections just lost a lawsuit about health care i mean yeah. they yeah like a forty million dollar lawsuit. I mean, if I was at DOC right now and I knew that they didn't, you know, give a crap about healthcare and were willing to like lose lawsuits over it, I'd be, you know, pretty scared. Yeah. Um, and so we were hoping that that argument, you know, like using that Parsons case would would be persuasive. Um, but to date it has not
0: looking forward, as courts begin to reopen and we find our way to whatever becomes the new normal. Although there are reasons to be hopeful, the confluence of a backlog of cases, the imperatives of a criminal defendant's constitutional rights, and the financial pressures of a pandemic-wracked economy present reasons to fear what Nate calls a descent into chaos.
1: One of the things that, that we are worried about is you know we had relatively manageable caseloads before this started um, and a lot of that's thanks to our, our leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a concern that there's just going to be this floodgate opened of, of cases that are going to become unmanageable um, you know which is why I think things like furloughs or layoffs could be very dangerous mm-hmm. and you know so I think that's something people worry about uh, but we've heard from the younger county attorneys they're being told to brace. Or, you know, um, so I think, you know, you're going to have a backlog of trial cases. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, that there's not going to, the trial calendar was just vacated in May. So, you know, you've got March, April, May. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got speedy trial right considerations. And when do those get reinstated? Because they've kind of been, the Supreme Court has said it's okay to, like, stay those. Um, So, you know, how do you coordinate trials, whether you start in June or July. Um, how do people have their rights protected when we do start? Are people just going to say too bad, too sad, like, you know, that kind of thing? Um, you know, those, those things, Concerned, I have trials that have moved, um, you know, and some clients are ready and some clients are like, fine, <laughs> 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 push it out as long as possible. Right. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, it's this descent, the, the potential for a descent into chaos, mm-hmm. I think. and and I hope that there are conversations being had, um, you know, about how do we not do that. And I, you know, if anybody asks me, I'll be happy to share my ideas, <laughs> 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 the things that can be done. Uh, but some of them are just uh, inevitable. I mean, the the, ca- the chaos of the trial schedule is going to be inevitable. Um, you know, I I don't want to be the person that has to decide. Who goes first when 10 people want to go first and they all technically have the right? Um, or, you know, to be honest, the attorneys who all of a sudden are going to, you know, be doing back to back to back to back trials. It's going to be affecting the ability to prepare. Um, and I think that's universal. I think that's county attorneys and public defenders. Sure. Um, you know, are we going to have quality trials? Um, and then again, the snowball effect, is that that affects the appellate courts later? Um, you know, are we going to have things overturned? Um, you know, those are the long-term things, I think, that we we think about.
0: As challenging as this time may be for attorneys, and as filled as it may be with uncertainty and fear, in the end, for attorneys like Nate, it always comes back to the clients.
1: The thing that I remind myself, and I think a lot of us do every day, you know, because we're fielding calls all the time from the jail. is you know um, it can be overwhelming and frustrating sometimes, but then you know I have a home to go to that I can isolate from, um, and so for me I just try to remember like what has to be going through my client's head, um, and the fear that they have to have, um, you know, and um, and and then coming into to work with such great people kind of helps keep it keep it going, um, but I think you know that the bottom line is the focus is on our clients. Um, And the focus is on making sure that we are doing everything that we can to reassure them um, and to to do whatever we can to make them feel like they're being listened to, um, that their case is being worked on diligently, um, and that we're doing everything we can to get them out of the situation.
0: At the end of the day, Nate sees his colleagues rising to the occasion, driven by a determination to do right by their clients
1: I will say you know significant steps have been been taken and um, you know I I you know I can't say enough for the the courts and um, you know and our attorneys who are um, you know we've got about 60 65 percent telecommuting and about 35 of us in the office but just the coordination of things that can be done um, from home people are taking on other people's workloads, and then we can go in and cover hearings for their clients, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so there's also been, you know, through, through this all, there's been a real, uh, I think a real bonding experience for us as attorneys um, and, and really uh, just a focus on how do we take care of our clients and how do we make sure that they're safe and how do we make sure as much as possible that they're not scared um, and there's been no ego to it. There's been, you know, nothing. And it's really made me even more proud um, to do what I do.
0: If the pandemic should cause us to re-examine anything about our legal system and particularly our criminal justice system, it should be our addiction to arrest and incarceration. Of the over 10 million arrests in this country each year, 95% are for non-violent offenses. Meanwhile, jails and prisons are ideal incubators for infectious disease, particularly a virus like the one that causes COVID-19 with its longer incubation time and the prevalence of asymptomatic infection. We know the horror stories from Rikers Island and prisons and immigration detention centers across the country. But what about jails? Because of delays in testing and poor data gathering in general when it comes to this pandemic, who knows how many people unknowingly contracted the virus in jail and took it back into their communities? Who knows how many jail employees and police officers have been infected through arrests and detentions of nonviolent offenders? Arrests that were utterly unnecessary to protect public safety. I mean you have a non-violent offender on the one hand and a virulent virus (laughs) that's devastating our economy and communities of color in particular on the other how can the balance of risks be any clearer and how can we not devote time and resources to finding viable alternatives? Shortly after I talked to Nate Tucson newspapers reported that a correction worker in the Pima County jail had tested positive for the virus that causes COVID-19. In June, after Arizona lifted its stay at home order in mid-May, the state experienced a spike in COVID-19 cases becoming one of the nation's hotspots for the virus. Also, since the time I talked to Nate, the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers resulted in nationwide protests and renewed scrutiny, not just of policing in this country, but of the criminal justice system as a whole. Change seems not just imperative, but inevitable, though the nature and extent of that change remains to be seen. We'll be talking more about the criminal justice system and prisons in particular in future episodes. Please look for future episodes of Practice in Place on the Arizona Law website at law.arizona.edu forward slash legal dash writing. We're also, yay, now on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, Anchor, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review to help us reach new listeners. You can like us on Facebook. Just search for Practice in Place. We'll share additional content related to each new episode there. You can also follow us on Twitter at Practice Viral and on Instagram at Practice Pod. And you can follow the U Arizona Law Legal Writing Team on Twitter at UA Law L E G L R I T N G. Practice in Place is a production of the Legal Writing Program at the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. Special thanks to James Alvarez, our talented editor, whom we must credit for everything about this podcast that sounds polished or professional. We hope to continue providing a window into how the COVID-19 crisis has impacted our courts and the practice of law, and also sharing our insights into what the response to that crisis tells us about the past, present, and future of our courts and the legal profession. Until next time.